to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker for today, Rabbi Jonathan Seiger. Rabbi Seiger was born in Boston and raised in New York. He's an alumnus of the Portledge School and graduated from Brandeis University with honors and is also a graduate of, get this, the Second City's Conservatory of Improvisational Theater in Chicago. Who knew? <laughs> Where he also worked as an assistant producer. Um, he received his master's degree and later his rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College in 2002 and is a member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis representing the Reform Movement. Rabbi Seiger is the spiritual leader of Congregation Jewish Community North, serves as a District 1 lead chaplain for the Harris County Sheriff's Office, and, and is involved with many interfaith and intercultural dialogue programs. We are always glad to have him here. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Seiger. Good morning. So happy to be with you all and uh, thrilled to, to be able to spend some time with you uh, remotely, but uh, I hope spiritually pretty close with you. Uh, also incredibly jealous of your band. I know jealousy is, is probably not a value that, that you're looking to me to espouse. So maybe maybe just appreciative and, and wistfully hoping I can somehow maybe sneak them into the back of a van and borrow them for an occasional Friday night, but I'll worry about my needs later. Uh, I want to speak with you this morning a little bit um, about the conceit of, of fatherhood, uh, it being Father's Day, and also, happily, uh, I have a wonderful tie-in to Juneteenth um, as well, um, which is particularly nice since we are Texans and know that that uh, originated here, and uh, I'm actually in a... Uh, uh, a uh, mixed race family. So it's kind of nice that I get to celebrate everything today, um, maybe vicariously through my wife and, and children, but uh, I'm gonna take any opportunity to celebrate freedom that I can. Uh, so just a few minutes, uh, it, it's a little uh, challenging in that being a, a member of, of uh, a, a solidly progressive religious movement that spends a lot of time trying to deal with the legacy of um, the patriarchy and uh, more so bronze age ideas uh, that, that we've had some, some challenges shaking in. And more so than even bronze age, I'm not even talking about ancient Israel and sort of the old, old, old world, but even sort of the medieval world. Um, which was, uh, for those of you that may be students of, of religious history um, or just history in general, somehow seems more repressive than back in the days of uh, the patriarchs and even under uh, some of the most oppressive regimes that humanity has ever known. 
I mean, uh, the Roman Empire being being one to think that somehow society uh, somehow found a way to get worse, but in the Middle Ages, it certainly did. And I'm aware of that legacy. Uh, and yet there is a lot of wisdom and power to be found and encouragement that can be found looking at the way that, uh, in particular, Jewish tradition has looked at the idea of, of fatherhood uh, and our relationship with God when we speak about God as a divine father. And I would normally uh, err on the side of, of a broader idea of that. I talk about God as, as parent. Uh, we talk about God as divine parent, us as, as children, rather than use the, the rather limiting language of, of fathers and sons. But I think for purposes of, of today, uh, if you'll indulge me, um, to, to use some of that language to, to maybe tease out a little bit how maybe it's not quite as um, reductionist as we might, we might think, that, that actually even in the language that was used of, of fathers and sons and what we might think of as um, traditionally masculine behaviors um, or, or the, the sort of the, the idea of what the archetype is, that um, we actually may find it challenging and then actually more open-minded and a and, and little bit more um, challenging to what our conception of what our ancestors' conceptions were. Um, that's not to say that we aren't accurate in, in saying, well, you know, women were, were treated as, as uh, less than somehow, and that's absolutely true. Um, but be that as it may, um, I wanna go through a little bit here and then hopefully get into some of the more spiritual uh, aspects of it, which um, I find fascinating. The first step is to think about God as a parent, um, which is a way that, that traditionally we speak about God. You've all heard the, our Father who art in heaven, obviously coming from Christian tradition, but um, as Judaism predates Christianity by, I think, a couple weeks, I'm not sure. I mean, it was maybe a month or two, um, give or take, you know, a couple millennia. But um, the, the earliest ideas of God as parents is actually rooted in really, really, really old time religion, like before we had probably um, anything resembling organized, what we would recognize as civilization. There was a, a period of time where it was ancestor worship. You would leave offerings for the spirits of the dead. And that is, is something that, that we still see. I mean, there are, there are echoes of that in almost every major religion and, and in many cultures. Um, um, people love inviting me to Dia de los Muertos events because they're saying, hey, you know, we used to do that too. Only we didn't have sugar skulls. I don't know what we did when the ancient uh, Hebrews were offering uh, libations and things to, to their ancestor spirits. But the earliest human religions, a lot were were offerings to our to our ancestors, literally making our our parents and our grandparents um, lowercase g gods that had power to protect us and help us, and and we would help that they would they would look over us, and we still feel that way. I, I, at least I think many of us do still want to believe that um, our ancestors are looking out over us or that, that are alive in us and around us in some way. But when we think about how uh, ultimately our conception of God, of a creator and of a, 
an intelligence and a will at the center of all being, that God became that parent uh, or that the great father um, figure, uh, someone who has given us life, who protects us, who provides for us, who rescues or redeems us, and also later on teaches us the role of teacher, which becomes central. This idea of thinking about God in this way um, is really made concrete and, and um, takes on a, a level of um, central importance in our high holiday liturgy. If any of you have Jewish friends or if, uh, I mean, I've spoken with you all actually, uh, I think at, at uh, one or two times during our high holiday season, um, either at, at this group or at a unity group here in Houston. And one of the central pieces of our liturgy is known as the Avinu Malkenu, which means our father, our king. And the legend behind this prayer is that there, there was a, a drought, uh, something again that we're familiar with, sadly here, maybe, maybe it'll help today to talk about it and we'll get some much needed rain. Uh, but it was a fast day and one of the, the great rabbis of this generation, this is going back to uh, the, the first, second century of uh, the, the common era. So you know, about 1800 years ago or so. Um, uh, this Rabbi Eliezer offers 25 blessings and nothing happens. And he's a pretty good rabbi. He's you know, definitely an, an A-lister, uh, but nothing happens. At which point Rabbi Akiva, who um, was the, the one of the, the greatest of all times, uh, Rabbi Akiva stands up and offers this prayer. He says, our father, our king, we have no, we have no king but you. Um, and our, our father, our king, and, and he addresses God as our father, Avinu Malkinu, at which point it starts to rain. The idea being, he says, and we, we see this again in our, uh, in our liturgy, that as a father has mercy on his children, have mercy on us. Yes, you're also our king and, and you are responsible for justice and we want you to deal justly with us. And we understand that, that you're God and there are rules and you're in charge, but you're also our parent. And we're looking to you not only as, as people trying to be loyal to you as subjects, of a sovereign, but also as children. And in that context, it begins to rain. And uh, that becomes an important piece of, of that liturgy, I mean, to this, to this day. And we, we balance it out because I, I mentioned it before, we don't wanna restrict the thinking that it, it, it's solely you know, male language. So we also speak about God as divine mother of the universe or, um, having both attributes, and I'll speak about that in a moment. Uh, but we, we have this idea of, of, of fatherhood and the relationship that we have with God being parental. And uh, it's, it's derived, uh, Akiva didn't come to this out of nowhere. It, it starts right in the Torah. It starts in, in, in Deuteronomy, for example, where God says, you are my children. Your children, you should behave a certain way. Your children, you are my children. Banim, you're, uh, you're children of God. Uh, and, and later on, uh, or at other sections, actually, even Exodus, which don't let the, don't let the, 
the, the Torah is sort of like a, uh, in some ways it's, it's like an art film, you know, maybe Quentin Tarantino, I don't know how we feel about him all the time, but you know, earlier or later, the, the books aren't necessarily, they weren't necessarily written in chronological order uh, in a sense. Uh, so, but in Exodus where it says, let Israel come worship me, they're my firstborn child. So there's biblical precedent for it. The prophets certainly seize upon this. And I'm gonna come back to one of, uh, one of my favorite prophets, at the end of my remarks this morning. So we, we have this idea um, of, of God being parent to the children of Israel, um, God being each of our parents. And, and as one modern Jewish writer wrote, uh, which I love, is that we cannot advocate for universal brotherhood if we do not first start with the idea that God is a universal father or parent, right? We can't all be, we can't be brothers and sisters if we don't share the same parent. And so before we talk about us all being brothers and sisters, we, we start with the fact that God is everybody's parent. And um, for Jews, that's, that's meant pretty literally. Uh, that's, that's obviously a, a divide when in, 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 in certain faiths, uh, specifically Christians and Jews, the idea of God having one begotten son, whereas in, in Judaism, everybody is, whether or not we behave accordingly, whether or not we accept it, whether or not we, we do honor to that position is uh, much of the concern of our particular religious traditions. But the idea is that God is literally our parent and, and, and that that's part of why we're here and part of our responsibility. Um, that's why the, the Bible, the Torah tells us that. That's why the prophets use that language. They're, they're not, it is a metaphor, but it's meant to be taken very seriously. Um, the story in Exodus, when we talk about God being a redeemer and provider, there's a beautiful Midrash. Midrash is a, a rabbinic story um, that has been handed down to us that discusses the angel that went before the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. And they tell the story, they say, this is, we'll give you an example of what that means. How did God behave towards our ancestors when they were being liberated? And this is particularly good because of you know, Juneteenth. Uh, I think we have this idea of, of the, the importance of liberation stories um, or, uh, the, the idea of what the, the obligation we have as people that have, have experienced liberation towards other groups. And it says that the Almighty treated, treated us as a, as a father does their son. They were leading their son on a journey. They were walking down the road. They were traveling. And some, some bandits were coming the other way. And so... God, as the father, takes the child, takes us and puts us behind, protects us, walks in front of us so that no harm can come to us. And they keep traveling, and suddenly there's a wolf following them. There's a wolf that starts stalking them. And so God takes us and then puts us in front. And the language that, that is used, the, the comparison they're using is the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. 
that as God protected the Israelites in the camp, it was as though uh, just as a father would protect their son by moving them either behind them, if there are some sketchy looking guys coming down the street, you know, holding a hand, put them behind, or if there's uh, an animal, come in front of me so that the, the wolf can't get to you from, from this side. Um, and then of course, because I guess they were in just a really bad neighborhood, um, you know, they were, uh, they weren't as familiar with Houston, maybe as some of us that live here now, they went to the wrong part of town and there were both wolves and bandits. Well, now what do you do? Well, now you put the child on your shoulders, picks the child up, puts the child around their shoulders and carrying the child above them. So they're protected from all sides. But again, we are Texans, it's drought. The sun gets too hot and the kid starts getting sunburned. So what does God do? Takes a garment and puts the garment over the child, which is the tabernacle. So they're using all these analogies from the, uh, from the Bible and from the story to say, this is, this is God acting in a way symbolically. This is symbolic. These are symbolic acts of the way that parents act for us, that a father will act for the son, protect them from the front, protect them from the rear, carry them. And if there's a problem, they'll cover them with their garment. And this is the way that, that God was acting out on a uh, larger level and on a metaphorical level, the way that we behave towards children. And we find in that, uh, again, this idea of how do we carry out that family tradition? If we are supposed to be inspired by and guided by the examples that we take from scripture and our religious tradition, whether or not we want to take them literally or as historical texts, which I would, you know, advise some, uh, that we use some discretion there but that we, we seize on the metaphor and the idea of what is it that, that, that our texts and our traditions are, are pushing us to do. And particularly on this day, when we think about parenthood or fatherhood and our relationship with our fathers and our parents, what do our fathers do for us in, in the ideal situation, right? We all know that not everybody has good parents. We know that there are plenty of fathers that let people down. Uh, I, as a father, know that I've made mistakes, hopefully nothing that won't you know, be fixed in keeping with Jewish tradition by years of, of you know, psychotherapy, keeping on other family traditions. Um, however, uh, there's still this idea that, that you know, that we do have a template and that there are, we have a model and a good model. Um, sometimes it's a confusing model, right? It's not consistent. I mean, that's, if we wanna talk about differences in approaches to God as father, um, in, in uh, Jewish tradition, and certainly in the prophets, God seems pretty, you know, rage addicted and, and downright, you know, kind of uh, abusive sometimes. And, and it's, it's the rabbis that explain, no, we're misreading it. You just don't understand what's going on. It's tough love. It's not abuse. We might be splitting hairs there, right? Or, or playing uh, semantics. I, I think it's, it's there, there's some stuff in the prophets in, in Jewish history that might say, I don't think that qualifies as tough love. I think that that qualifies as uh, a, a, a model of fatherhood that we don't want to seize upon. But uh, fortunately, we're able to recognize that that reflection goes both ways, right? Just as we're taking our text and saying, hey, this is what our tradition tells us men are supposed to be like and what fathers are supposed to be like. We can also project and say this, our religious texts, our, our, our tradition reflects what human beings are like also, right? It, it goes both ways. It's a very, it's a part of the beauty of the relationship, I think, is that we are in relationship with our faith traditions. We're in relationship with our sacred texts and that it is a wrestling match, which um, 
you know, is, is actually what the name Israel means, right? Someone who struggles with God and, and with tradition. So uh, we're always wrestling with our fathers. We're always wrestling with our father's legacies. We're always wrestling with the, the, the challenges and the blessings that we've received from our fathers and what that means for us as men and as fathers and as partners and friends of fathers and or parents in general. Of course, it's larger than, than and expands beyond one gender or, or, um, or conception of, of identity. Um, but I'm using the traditional language. I feel like I'm over-apologizing for it, but I, it's just, you know, that's my own modern progressive the, you know, theological neuroses coming through. Um, beyond that idea of protector, I, I, I want to uh, speak about the idea of fathers as teachers, because I think that's actually what becomes interesting to me, that, that when we start looking at, at our tradition and talk about what is it that makes a father... Um, truly remarkable. You know, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And the rabbis said, well, why do fathers get precedence there? Why does it say, honor your fathers and your mothers? And one could say, well, one, one innately um, is more respectful and caring for their mother. Maybe we see that in, in childhood because the, the mothers are traditionally the primary caregivers or, or, or more present or fathers might've been more remote. Uh, maybe you needed to be reminded that you needed to, respect your father? Why would fathers get the, the primacy in that law? Again, they're, they're looking at it very, very you know, uh, literally. And they say, no, it's because fathers are the teachers of Torah. Because that was, that was you know, your mother teaches you life skills, but you're, you're in, in a sense of the basic life skills and, and takes care of you. But your father ultimately steps in and starts teaching you Torah, especially in, in, in a traditional context where, where, uh, religious learning or, or legal studies, textual studies, religious stuff was, was the domain or Torah philosophy was the domain of, of, of fathers. Uh, study, uh, what we think of study was a, traditionally a, a, you know, a, a men's activity. Um, so the, the fact was the, the level of respect of your father was not so much necessarily because yes, they're your parent, but also because they're your teacher of Torah. And uh, the Talmud goes on to describe like, okay, but what if, you know, your father and your teacher, you have, you've, like, say you have a teacher, are both captured and you can only rescue one. You got to rescue your teacher. You got to rescue your teacher first, the teacher of Torah, because they, they're your father in a spiritual sense, which is seen as somewhat um, higher, right? You're serving God, not, not, not the mundane earthly fatherdom, but the, the spiritual divine fatherhood and uh, the wisdom, which is ultimately seen as, as more enduring. Now, there's obviously a punchline to this, which is, well, what, unless your father is a sage as well, which one would hope everyone's father is also wise, in which case, if he's your father and your teacher, then you definitely rescue him first. Um, and the idea of your father being your teacher um, actually has a really interesting component to it, especially when we talk about people that may have conflicted relationships with their father. And the idea of honoring your father is interpreted as saying to us that it doesn't necessarily mean that you listen to your father. In fact, you can honor your father by not following him as an example. 
and not going all in. If your father, for example, is, is you know, damaged or troubled or is a criminal, then if you don't go into the family business and you, you decide not to become uh, a, a jewel thief, as disappointing as, as it will be to your father, who was hoping you would drive the getaway van, you're actually bringing more honor to him because you're showing that, that, that redemption is possible, that, that the, the human spirit and, and the human soul is, is able to withstand even the influence of, of a father or a parent who, who may be on, on the wrong path. Um, so, so there are different ways to honor your, your father. Um, mostly it's the idea of teaching, right? So you can sort of learn what not to do from your father as much as you can learn what to do from your father. And following down this idea, although choosing to stick to the positive idea of it, of what a father's role is, it, not necessarily to be a disciplinarian, sure, but more so to just be a, a teacher, to teach children how to ask questions. The Passover uh, ritual, our Seder every year, is filled with questions. And the idea is, we're told, if your child is, doesn't know how to ask questions, you teach them how to ask questions. Like that's the role of a teacher, is to teach people how to learn, how to ask questions. One of the greatest things that a, a parent can do, that a father can do for their son or daughter, is to teach them to ask questions. We're also told that you must teach your child a trade. If you do not teach your child or help your child learn how to support themselves, you're training them to be a criminal. So one way or another, you're teaching them. You're either teaching them by, by action or you're teaching them by inaction. But no matter what, as a parent, as, as a father, your, your, your role on top of everything else, to be a, protect, a protector uh, and a provider, is, is, is perhaps most importantly to be a teacher so that that person can learn how to provide and protect for themselves and also to participate in the larger work, the larger work of, of, of the family business. And what is the family business? Well, the family business is, is building a better world, building a world that, that is, is better for all of God's children. There's a, a story, a Hasidic story from, from Europe that's told about uh, an innkeeper. And uh, he, he ran a, a very popular inn. It was very humble. It was just, you know, a local place people would go and they would gather and, and they would get meals there and they would, they would spend their time there. But he started to get old and he said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I feel mortality is coming upon me. And I am, am concerned that, that I'm not going to go to heaven. Like I, I haven't done enough learning. I haven't, I haven't done enough um, uh, deep study. I want to go off and do that. And he leaves the inn to his son, his eldest son takes over and the man goes off to study. Meanwhile, the, the son uh, turns the place into a really hip gastropub brings in a bunch of micro craft breweries. They start having live music. They, they decorate the whole inside. So it looks like an Apple store. Everything is like stainless steel. And like, it becomes a big party place and really popular, very hip. And all the locals stop going. It's no longer the place it was. It's successful and it's updated and it's hip and it's cool, but it, it's, it, it loses its soul in a sense. And uh, the local rabbi goes to the man who is studying and he says, why are you here? What, what, do you know what's going on? It, it, do, you know, do you know what your son has done to your, your inn? He's like, I, I, I can't do that anymore. I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I haven't done enough. I, I, I ran an inn, but, but I'm not a scholar. I'm not the sage. And the rabbi says, you know, God gives 
different jobs to people. It's a big, there's a lot of work going on here. He said, God put you there to create a place where people could gather and, and have a place to go and deepen their relationship and deepen their friends. You weren't, you, you, it, it, perhaps your role is not to be the scholar. Perhaps your role is to be the innkeeper where people come together and have a place that is theirs. And that is the community's central heart and soul of the community when they're not in synagogue, right? They, they wanted a place to be with that isn't the study hall. Maybe that's what God had in plan for you. Maybe, maybe there's a reason that, you know, you, you had such a successful, long lasting career. You need to consider that. And uh, the man did consider it, went back and, and took over and, 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 and restored it to back to where it was. And the people that were really into the hip, young, uh, fun place to party, they found another place which is always how that works. Those places are transitory rather than what is really lasting and what really matters and when you really build a legacy. And um, I always like that idea because in a sense that there's different ways to serve in, in that, that part of this larger, this larger context. And what are we teaching our children? That, you know, maybe, you know, find your place and, and, and seize upon it and, and accept that there are a lot of different ways to serve. And, and that if you find you're, you're good at something, doing well at something, perhaps that's what you're meant to do. We shouldn't be measuring ourselves by other people and what we think other people are doing that is better than we are. And I wanna I want end with this, with one note. Um, I know that we were giving out measuring tapes, you know, measure of a man. And, and when we talk about the family business and building a better world and building, you'd say God's tabernacle on earth, like to create a, a, a dwelling place, a place where God can dwell among us and that people can gather and, and feel connected to God uh, wherever we go. One of the, my favorite examples of this is found in the prophet Ezekiel in the Hebrew scriptures, where after we get all of the strange sights of, of you know, weird angels and, and um, revelations of, of heaven and God's chariot, not revelations, but I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, visions of, of divine chariot. There's a vision of a temple where a man shows up with a, with a measuring rod. I don't know if you're all familiar with, with this, these chapters of Ezekiel. I, I wouldn't necessarily expect you to be, but there's a section that describes the prophet sees a man appear before him, an angel who has a, a measuring rod, and he starts describing him the way that the, 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 the temple should be built, a restored temple. And it's sort of the ideal temple. We talk about it's the, the third temple or the, the ideal form of God's temple. And it's filled with all sorts of, of, of metaphors and descriptions. And one of them um, that we see is upon is the way that the women's court and the men's court are designed facing each other so that they're actually open and connected. And one of our, our uh, commentators says, this is a beautiful thing. Like it's describing the sense that the things that normally kept people separate will actually be open and joined together in the ideal in the ideal temple that God envisions, but it's all done with this angel that shows up with a measuring stick, with a measuring uh, rod. And this idea that that's symbolic of, of building things, which is of course, um, one of those things that is traditionally people think about it, their dads and, and, and you know, um, and, and the, the family business of men teaching their, their sons how to build things, you know, how to build a tabernacle, how to build a tabernacle, how to build a tent, how to measure things. Um, Obviously, it's broader than that. Um, my wife is much better at construction than I am in most ways. So we realize that it, it, it's not inherited uh, by chromosomes. 
But traditionally, you know, you would go to your father, your father would teach you how to use these things, a cubit or a measuring rod, or this is how you, you, you construct things. And in the context of the prophet, we have this idea of here is, here is the tool that you're going to use to build a better world. Here is, the, here is the, the first thing you need in order to start constructing something. How do you use this to create proportions and to measure things uh, and, and to begin the work of building a, a, a better world? And that can be done symbolically as well as literally uh, with useful tools like a retractable measuring tape. So I hope that you all will use that in good health. And um, well, remember to uh, live up to the greatest ideals of parenthood and to, uh, if, if you wrestle with, with the legacy of difficult parents, then, then learn from that as well and, and uh, help us all be, be better parents, both literal and uh, figurative. I thank you for, for the attention. It, it's very difficult, as you all know, uh, in a world of Zoom to, to gauge, um, people's uh, reactions or, or uh, listlessness and or um, wide eyes of panic as to how long this guy's gonna go on and on about uh, biblical precedent and uh, Bronze Age conceptions of fatherhood. Um, luckily for me, I'm just staring at a, at a, at a screen so I, I really can't see you sweating or squirming. Um, although I do, uh, it is actually a lovely sanctuary. I do like those pews. Um, it reminds us of all the work we've got to do in hours. We are due for, uh, for some upkeep. So I'm gonna take the band and uh, I'm gonna take some photographs of, of your place. Say, oh, look at their carpeting, it's very nice. Um, and now I'm gonna invite you, I'm gonna transition into a, a meditation. And I wanna uh, do a meditation that's gonna be a little bit um, unusual in that um, I wanna focus it on the idea of, of redemption um, and more into that role of God as, as, as liberator and redeemer. And I'll ask that you, you, you get yourself comfortable. And um, if any of this is challenging physically for you or makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to you know, let yourself out. Um, one of the ways that we think about God as our parent, as someone who rescues us, who helps us, is a very powerful experience and uh, particularly the idea of being freed from, from slavery or bondage or constriction. So I'm gonna ask you to um, center yourself, begin with some good deep breathing. I always recommend a four count. Get yourself comfortable, but I'm gonna ask that you Bring your, as much as you can, try to bring your wrists together as though they're bound. Place them between your legs. You're gonna feel a little bit constricted. It's actually gonna make it a little bit harder to get those deep breaths and that's okay. Uh, and I want you to, to, to lean forward a little bit. Again, if you causes any dizziness or discomfort, then don't continue with it. We're not gonna do anything too, too stringent, but just a sense that slightly uncomfortable. We're going for a little bit of slight discomfort, which is a weird thing, but stick with me. I want you to take some good breaths. And I want you to think about 
things in your life that may be holding you in place. They might be resentments. They might be anxieties. It might be relationships. It might be grief. We all carry these things with us. And they can keep us stuck. But we have inherited a legacy of freedom, of liberation. power that moves through us and gives us the strength to free ourselves from these things. I want you to feel the power that each of us has inherited rising up through you from beneath you, from the ground beneath your feet. I want you to feel light. of your feet, rising, rising like waters through your knees, up through your hips, raising your shoulders, expanding your chest, and in doing so, I want you to allow your wrists to pull apart expanding, stretching, breaking loose from those bonds that hold you there. Feeling the, the light rising like waters through your chest, out through your shoulders so that you are sitting upright and open. filling with light and strength and healing as your shoulders come in line with your hips, feeling those burdens that was pushing and holding over, feeling it sliding, falling. Like a yoke has been thrown off of your, your neck and your back, feeling freed from those things that constrain you, that keep you from being who you wish to be who you feel called to be. Breathing more easily now. Feeling that light descending through your forearms, through your elbows, out to your hands where they become instruments of light. Instruments of freedom instruments of encouragement. Free now, not held in place, but free to grasp up and take up the instruments that you will use 
to free others, to join, to hold, to liberate. And I want you to look at your arms as we come out of this together a little bit. I want to teach you what a cubit was. If you're not familiar with a cubit, a cubit is the length from your elbow to the tip of your index finger. And if you have a friend, I hope you do have friends, people that you're sitting next to, uh, take a moment and hopefully everyone has sanitized. But if you place your arm next to someone you're sitting next to and you look, you should be fairly amazed at how uniform in most cases, regardless of stature, I mean, give or take a, a couple inches, but generally the cupid is pretty standard um, between the, the elbow and the tip of your index finger. And most, most cases they go, wow, that is really pretty close. And that was what a cubit was. Some people said a cubit, you know, give or, give or take a, a, a couple inches. So each together, Similarities. So when you go out and you take with your uh, your measuring tapes, if you don't have your measuring tape, you always have a built-in cubit. <laughs> I like to end meditation with some practical information. So. I believe this will conclude my my portion of your program this morning. It is a uh, a pleasure as always to be with you all and to spend some time to now watch myself in stereo. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.